The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus said to them, these are my words that I said to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds so they understood the scriptures and said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending upon you the promise of my father, but you are to wait in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And as he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired Luke in the writing of these words, that they had power for Luke's day, and we believe they have power today if we will hear them, and so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this text to us perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to be seated. Are you waiting on the Lord? Are you in a season of your life where you're waiting on the Lord? Or have you recently been in a season of your life where you're waiting on the Lord? Or do you worry that maybe you're about to go into a season where you're waiting on the Lord? What I mean by this is a season where you're waiting for God to move. Where you're waiting for the Lord to move in your life, to correct a situation, to bring about a clarity of calling or the empowerment or the ability or the opportunity to move more into what he's putting in front of you. A season of waiting on God. Are you waiting on the Lord? In the 1960s, a young Canadian Anglican priest found himself spiritually depressed. Now, I said 1960s, so you know that it's not me, okay? Um, 1960s, a Canadian young Anglican priest found himself spiritually depressed he had been in a very dry season of ministry, a very dry season for just far too long. And he had come to the conclusion, it's time to quit, quit on ministry. And just as he made that decision to quit, he was invited to an event that changed everything. What happened at that event? What was that event? Well, you'll just have to wait till the end of the sermon. Are you waiting on the Lord? Today's text from Luke 24 is a text about the Ascension. And the Feast of the Ascension, the, the day of the year where we celebrate Jesus' Ascension, was actually this last Thursday. It always falls on a Thursday. This is the Sunday after Ascension. And because it falls on a Thursday, it, it becomes the commonly forgotten feast of the church year. But this is one of the big ones. This is up there with Easter and Christmas. The Ascension is a big deal but it's often forgotten. We say it every week in the creed. We believe he ascended into heaven. Now what the ascension really is, is after Jesus has borne the sins of humanity, died on the cross, 
been raised from the dead and therefore freed us from the power of death and sin and Satan, that victory has been achieved, the ascension is his enthronement at the right hand of God the Father as the king of the universe. The ascension is his taking up his throne. It's Jesus truly, fully being embraced as the king of the cosmos. And so this is the ascension text we have here in Luke chapter 24. Jesus' enthronement, King Jesus. And what's great is that just as he's about to ascend, Jesus here, just like he does in Matthew 28 in a slightly different version, just before King Jesus takes his throne, he gives us his subjects, us his people, us his disciples, our standing orders. These are the last words of the king spoken over his church before he takes up his throne in heaven. And this is what he says. In verse 46 to 48, he says, you're on mission. You are going out with the gospel. You are going to go out and you're going to live lives, lives that reflect the gospel And you're going to do it in your workplaces and you're going to do it in your homes and you're going to do it to the ends of the earth and you're going to live out the good news and as a result, the world's going to get changed. Specifically, quickly, what he does is he gives us the heart of the gospel in verses 46, 47, 48. By the way, if you want to follow, we're in Luke 24, end of Luke's gospel, beginning at verse 46. In verse 46, he gives the heart of the gospel In verse 47, he gives the hardness of the gospel. And in verse 48, he gives us the heralds of the gospel. And and I'll go through this quickly because this isn't really my main point, but it has to be said. The heart of the gospel in verse 46 is this. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So at the heart of the gospel, he's reminding us, this is King Jesus giving us this final word. Okay, remember folks, The center, the heart of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we celebrate it every Sunday when we gather, this this moment that tells us again, the death and resurrection of Jesus, bearing the sins of the world, forgiving us, freeing us from death. This is the heart of the gospel. So that's the heart of the gospel, verse 46. Verse 47 though, he then gives us the hardness of the gospel. It's gonna be a hard pill to swallow. And here's why, because verse 47 says, repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There's two parts of the hardness here. The first part of the hardness is the word repentance. And the next word, forgiveness. You see, this is what makes the gospel hard. It's good news, but it's hard good news because the reality of the gospel says you're not okay just as you are. The gospel tells us you're broken and you're in need of salvation. You need a savior. And in our world that is so full of self-affirming to the nth degree, I mean, everything's about, you know, you know, you just go and you be built up and everything's great about you. It's all about you. That's a hard gospel to hear. To be told, no, you need to repent, you need to turn around. But it's the truth of the good news. As Tim Keller famously says, he says, here's the gospel. It's got two parts. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever imagined. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. 
You're more sinful than you ever imagined. Whoa. But you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the call to repentance. That's the call to a new life. And that makes it hard. That means as we go out into the world to share the gospel, just as it was shared with me when I was an atheist and an unbeliever, it was hard to hear. But also the hardness of the gospel, verse 47 says, is this is for everybody. It's supposed to go to the ends of the earth. It's for all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. This little crew of disciples Somehow out of this group, it's going to go everywhere. We had a real sense of this more and more as we've you know, been adjusting and, and, and lovingly adjusting into living in the States. Now, again, I'm not suggesting I'm a missionary to Cambodia, but you know, coming from Canada to the United States, we certainly are living a little more into this reality of what it means for this gospel to go to all nations. We went from one nation to another. And there's a lot of times it's mostly the same but there's other times it's different. We were heading out just a couple days ago, going out and noticed that since it's Memorial Day weekend, that we have flag service we ordered for the house. And so we were, we're waiting for our flag to go up. You know, here's the Canadian ordering the American flag in front of his home. And we drove up, we noticed that they'd missed our house. Everyone else got their flags except us. And this is the second time this has happened. They know we're Canadians, I swear it. So I called up a parishioner here who I knew could fix the problem, and he fixed it. But the irony, I'm driving away, we're on the phone, on the Bluetooth in the car, and I'm calling this parishioner, the whole family's in the car, I'm asking for an American flag to be put up in my house, in front of my house, and we, a totally Canadian family, are driving to go see a hockey game with a Canadian team who eventually lost in double overtime to the Pittsburgh Penguins. But you see the irony here. You see this, these Canadians doing Canadian things, yet trying to order an American flag. It was, it was such a juxtaposed worldview, and yet that's the world we live in, gloriously. Can you imagine what this looks like for the gospel going around the world? From everywhere to everywhere. This is why the gospel's hard. But also then verse 48 then says, not only is there a heart of the gospel, that's the death and resurrection of Jesus, not only is there a hardness to the gospel, repentance, forgiveness, and it's got to go to the ends of the earth, but there's also the heralds of the gospel. And verse 48 says, you are my witnesses. You are the witnesses of these things. I mean, at this point, we're kind of hoping it's someone else, right? Well, that's a big job. I wonder who's going to do it. Guess what, disciples? It's you and me. This is the call over the church. This is King Jesus speaking over his church, saying to his followers, to his disciples, this is what you're going to be about. You're going to be living the gospel as hard as it is in this world, in your homes, in your workplaces, and you're going to do it in different ways. There's different ways that you're going to live out this gospel. We've all got these individual callings within this. What does it mean to be a gospel parent? What does it mean to be a gospel grandparent or a gospel neighbor? What does it mean to be a gospel coworker? What does it mean to live out the gospel in this world? And as you're asking the Lord that question, he's going to place that more and more on your heart. The call is for us to live the gospel. But if we're honest, I mean, opening that up, you know, the, the, the heart of the gospel, the hardness of the gospel, the heralds of the gospel, it just seems like it's too much. It seems like it's too big for us, doesn't it? And if you don't think it's too big for you, then you've missed what the gospel is and how hard it is. 
Here's the answer. It is too big for us. We can't do this on our own. This is too much. And of course, what we run into all the time, right, in the life of faith is we get this calling place in front of us. Jesus puts this massive calling on our lives. You're going to live like Jesus in this world, and it's going to make a profound gospel difference. That's the call. And then we look at it and go, okay, let's shrink that call down to a man-sized vision. The vision's too big. The vision's God-sized. I'll just shrink it down to Paul-sized. And I can do it. It's doable, right? This vision I can handle on my own. We do that all the time. But that's not the vision put in front of us. The vision is radical. The vision is world-changing. The vision means we need to throw ourselves, instead of reducing the vision, accept the size of the vision, accept it, and throw ourselves wildly on the mercy of God. Lord, you better show up or I'm done for. And he does. Look at verse 49. Verse 49 is the heart of this ascension text. Verse 49. Are you waiting on the Lord? Look at verse 49. He says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. And you're to wait in the city, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. The promise of my father to be clothed with power from on high. The, the promise here is God's own empowering presence. It's a great preparation for next Sunday. Next Sunday is Pentecost, right? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And this is the promise of the Father that Jesus has talked about already in his gospel. That there's the promised Holy Spirit. If we can imagine, it's God's own presence, God's own power coming to dwell within us, to live within us, to empower us to live better, to live for him, to do what is not possible for a mere human being. That's the promise. Clothed with power from on high. We should put t-shirts in the bookstore, clothed with power from on high, right? That's that place of absolute dependency. I need the Holy Spirit to be the one that empowers me to live this way. And let me be clear, when, it, when, when Jesus says here, it's a promise, which is a really important word. Promise is, a heart, is an important word. We're very careful, as I'm sure many of you are in your households, not to use the word promise lightly, right? If you say promise you know, be careful because little ears will hear that and will say, uh-uh, you, you said you promised, right? So we've, we've gotten down to a very small number of times we'll actually say promise because in a family of six, life changes quickly and we say, just couldn't happen. So we didn't promise it, but Jesus has promised. Now, let's be clear though. Promise doesn't mean promised anything. He's not saying, you know, the promise of my father is you get whatever you want, Right? Whatever you want, you've got it. It's all yours. That's not what this text is about at all. What is being promised here is power from on high to empower you to live as a Christian in this world. That's what's promised. Your ability to live as an agent of the gospel, your ability to actually live out Jesus' own life more and more in this world, that's what's promised. And hear it, it's a promise He's promising you that he will empower you to live more and more for him, to live more and more of a gospel life, to do the hard thing and actually live like a Christian in this world. The challenge is the disciples in our text have to wait for the promise. It doesn't happen right away. 
Verse 49 doesn't just promise them power, but it also promises them a waiting period. Jesus says, you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Stay literally means sit, wait, stay still, be right there until. I hate that word until. I hate that. I want it now. I don't want to wait until. Stay until when? Jesus doesn't tell them. They don't know that it's the day of Pentecost. They're waiting and they don't know. They got to wait. We live in this instant culture. Amazon is wrecking my ability to be patient. Because stuff arrives at my door five minutes after I press send on that Amazon order. It's amazing. I mean, it's crazy. We want it right now. And yet, Jesus has his disciples wait. They wait for the Holy Spirit. They wait for this promise to come to fruition in their lives. And it may be true, you may say, well, that's, that was for the disciples. They had to wait for the day of Pentecost. But hey, next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers, which is true. If you're a Christian, if you say Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you can say that with your heart, you got the Holy Spirit. You couldn't say it without him. So the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. So you may say, hey, we don't have to wait. We got the Spirit. We're clothed with power from on high. And yet, if you're like me, though a Spirit-filled Christian, we still go through periods of waiting, don't we? We still have seasons where we're waiting on the Lord. We're not feeling clothed with power from on high. We're waiting. We're saying, Lord, I do not feel empowered. You haven't yet opened up this opportunity. You haven't work through whatever barriers in front of me. You haven't opened up this new relationship or this new calling, whatever it may be. There's this barrier there. And we go through these seasons of waiting. Oh Lord, I need to be clothed with power from on high to fulfill this calling, but I'm not currently feeling very filled and clothed with power from on high. See, the problem we run into is, is we don't like waiting. Most of us, maybe you're really good at waiting. I'm terrible at waiting. I'm terrible at waiting. And, and, and here's the evidence that I'm terrible at waiting. My theology starts to go out the window. When I'm waiting through a difficult season, my theology starts to crumble. My theology, what I know about God, what I believe about God starts to crumble. It gets rusty around the edges. Here's, here's what happens, for example, for some people. Some people, when they say, okay, I've got the Spirit, Holy Spirit's in me, but I'm not feeling clothed with power from on high, what do they say? Well, I better start working that Holy Spirit machine. Got to manipulate, got to make it happen, got to get the feeling, got to get the liver shivers. You know, I'm too blessed to be depressed. You know, you have to work it up because, because it doesn't work. And how can I be a spirit-filled Christian and be going through this period of waiting? That doesn't work. But that's bad theology. The, the theology I fall into is just more of depression that says maybe God's not really going to show up. Maybe, you know, he's too busy. Maybe he's got other things to do. Maybe that just isn't really going to happen. But in both cases, spirit-filled Christians who go through periods of waiting can get to a very, very dark place. I hate waiting. Do you hate waiting? I hate waiting. I hate waiting. I've been waiting for my whole life, well, at least since the 80s, to see my team win the Stanley Cup final. I'm sorry, 
Just one more hockey reference. It's done for the season now. I won't talk about the Predators, so you'll be, you'll be spared at least until October. But just, I mean, I'll tell you, this, this was a little worrisome for me. In 2007, the Ottawa Senators that I was, I was cheering for, I'm a big Dallas Stars fan now, don't worry. We may, remember that whole like all nations thing, okay? So we're, we're, we're trying to cheer for all the nations, Dallas Stars included. Um, but, but Ottawa Senators, we lived in Ottawa 10 years, but just before we moved to Ottawa in 2007, 2007, hear this, just before we moved to Ottawa, Ottawa went all the way to the Stanley Cup final. And because of really, really bad refereeing, they lost in four games. But um, that was the year before we, we moved to Ottawa. Then we moved to Ottawa and we're like, wow, this is like an almost, almost championship team, right? And then we watched them be terrible for almost every one of those next 10 years. Like there was a couple years we did a little bit better, but mostly terrible. And then we moved here. And this year they went all the way to the Eastern Conference final. I started to say, maybe Lord, it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the problem. And of course we moved down here and Dallas was doing so well last year. We move here and Dallas did not do well this year. I thought, I think I'm cursing wherever I go. Um, but here's my point about waiting. <laughs> There's always a point, um, if I can find it. Uh, the point <laughs> is that in 2007, I rem- I, when I think about hockey, when I think about the Stanley Cup and all these, you know, this issue of 2007, 2007, that year, just before we moved to Ottawa, it was a horrible, difficult year of waiting for us. For me, vocationally, I was in the worst place. I was in a, seri- a period of just saying, Lord, what are you going to do in my life? You know, the whole Anglican communion was crumbling. The Episcopal church was falling apart. And I was a priest and figuring out, what am I going to do? How am I going to live through this? It was a terrible season that year watching the Stanley Cup final, the feeling, I am so not clothed with power from on high. And I was waiting. And waiting is hard. And I was miserable. And my family can testify to that. But you know what's amazing in this text? If you look with me at verses 52 and 53, these disciples do something incredible. They wait with joy. They wait with joy. They're waiting for the promise, but they wait with joy. Look at verses 52 and 53. They don't know when the Holy Spirit's going to come. They don't know when the promise is going to come. Jesus has left them. You got a big job, a big vision, a big calling, and... There's a promise coming for you to help you do that, and I'm leaving to go get ascended into heaven. So, see you guys. I mean, I'd be like, whoa, can we go through that again, please? I'd be depressed. I'd be terrified. But these guys, they wait with joy. Look at verse 52. And they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. They were in the temple worshiping. How did they live out this time of waiting on the Lord? Waiting to be clothed with power from on high for their, for their mission? Well, how did they wait? They waited with joy. They waited with worship. They waited in the total opposite way that I often wait. I want to wait like this. And Jesus in this ascension text is giving us a gift, friends. If you are like me and you go through a season of waiting, there is a gift here. You see, what Jesus is giving them giving the disciples, is a picture. On the ascension day, he's giving them a picture, a vision, an image for them to look at. And he's, bur- he's, he's bearing it into their soul, into their hearts. They're never going to forget this image. 
And because of the image he gives them on Ascension Day, they are going to learn to trust him more than ever before. And here's what I mean. You see, the reason they could wait with joy, bottom line, is they trusted the promise. Right? They're given a promise, and they trusted the promise. They trusted it, so they said, all right, we trust. We trust the Father. We trust the Father's promise. And so they could wait with joy. Trust. How does that grow? Well, Luke is going to show us, because what's amazing is that at the beginning and ending of Luke's gospel, he kind of bookends the whole story with a big question of trust. I mean, the whole Bible is really about God asking us one question, do you trust me? But Luke's gospel bookends, beginning and ending. Look what he does. He begins and ends his gospel intentionally to teach us about trust, purposely structuring it. Luke begins and ends his gospel in the temple. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, after four verses of prologue, in the temple. Verses 52, 53 in Luke 24, in the temple. He begins and ends in the temple. And listen to this. Listen to this. Look what Luke's doing. It's brilliant and it's intentional. Luke begins his gospel in the temple. Zechariah is given a promise of the father, the promise that he will have a son. Zechariah does not trust the promise. Remember, he laughs at the angel Gabriel, and he is struck dumb, mute, until the promise is fulfilled. God gets his promises done anyway, but Zechariah does not trust. He laughs, and he's struck mute. At the end of Luke's gospel, you've got the disciples being in the temple, They're given a promise from the Father, this time a promise for power, power from on high. They do trust the promise, and they are struck with joy and worship and praise until the promise is fulfilled. You see, two parallel stories, two very different outcomes. Why? Were these disciples super disciples? Like, oh, well, they just had so much faith. I mean, have you read the rest of the Gospels? These disciples are average or at least below average on the faith scale. But something's changed. Something's changed in 24 chapters from Luke chapter 1 to Luke 24. Something's changed that has changed their ability to trust the promise. Something has changed for their ability to really trust the one who made the promise, the Father. Something in 24 chapters has happened that has made them believe they can truly trust the promiser. And it's all summed up in this moment at the ascension. Everything in Luke's gospel comes to a head right here in one verse. And that's verse 50. You see, the image that Jesus gives the disciples that teaches them to trust the promise is it says he takes them out to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Now, let's be specific here. Luke says he lifted up his hands to bless them. He lifted up his hands. He's very specific. He lifted up his hands to bless them. This is the final image. He lifts up his hands. He blesses them. Verse 51, as he's blessing them, while he's blessing them, he ascends. While he's blessing, that's the final image. The last image the king of the universe etches into their memory. The last moment they have with Jesus is this image of him blessing them at the day of ascension. And what are they looking at when they look at his hands? 
Those hands of blessing are pierced and crucified hands. This is the moment it all comes together. This is the moment when they finally understand that they can trust the promise. Why? Oh, this is so cool. Look at verse 44 and 46. Just before this, Jesus says, of the Old Testament, he says, everything spoken about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying is the whole Old Testament points to me, right? That's why I love preaching on the Old Testament, showing where Jesus is clearly in there. But then he says in verse 46, he says, here's what they saw, what you see in the Old Testament. Here's what you see in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's what we see. In other words, what he's saying, hear this. Jesus says in verse 44 and 46, the father's already made a promise. It's a promise in the Old Testament, and he makes it again and again and again in the Old Testament. And the father promised that his son would die for you and me. And guess what? On the day of ascension, all comes to a head when he lifts up those hands and says a blessing. And they see it right before their eyes. They see it in the hands. Oh, the father promised his son would die. Well, look, the father keeps his promises. The father keeps his promises. Even if it means the death of his son, the father keeps the promises. This father keeps his promises. It makes you think of Romans 8, when Paul says, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us all things? I mean, what this ascension moment is saying, guys, is the king of the universe is saying, I'm giving you a final image here. There's a promise coming. And you're going to have seasons of waiting. You're going to have seasons of trial because this vision and this call I put in front of you is huge and it's hard. But I'm sending the promise of my father on you. And there's going to be seasons where you're going to doubt it to the core of your being. There's going to be seasons where you're going to want to walk away, when you're going to run run away and give up. But I'm giving you this final image. I'm giving you this picture of the ascension. Do you see why it's one of the principal feasts of the church year? Look at my hands, Jesus is saying, and remember my hands. The final image the king gives his world, the father keeps his promises. Are you waiting on the Lord? Are you waiting to be clothed with power from on high? Are you waiting to believe again that the Lord will give you the strength and the power to live this life he's called you to? In the 1960s, that young Anglican Canadian priest found himself spiritually depressed. He'd been in a dry season of ministry for far too long and he was ready to quit. And just as he decided to quit, he was invited to an event that changed everything. He went to an event which was a weekend preaching mission. And there he heard afresh the gospel. And there, more than ever before in his life, he felt the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit come upon him. He felt clothed with power from on high for the first time in many, many years after a long dry season. And he returned to full-time ministry. 
and he was faithful, and that ministry grew. And in 1992, he was elected as the Bishop of Brandon in Canada, and he served faithfully. And then in 2007, our paths crossed. Remember 2007, I was in that terrible place of disaster, that terrible place of wondering what God was gonna do with his crumbling Anglican communion, the Episcopal Church falling apart. This man was one of the two, only two bishops out of all of Canada that stood up and said, we can go no further down this road. And this man, this man who'd gone through such spiritual depression, who'd been on the edge of giving it all up and yet stuck it out, this man was the one who formed, along with one other bishop, our new church in Canada. This is the one that gave us now what we call the Anglican Church in North America in Canada. This is the man that I was able to first talk to and say, what am I, able to, what am I gonna do? And he was able to show me and invite me. His name is Malcolm Harding. And that man, I have seen it, is clothed with power from on high. Are you waiting on the Lord? Let that image of the ascending Jesus keep you from giving up. Let that image of the ascending Jesus with his hands outstretched show you the gospel, that you would trust the promise, that you will be clothed with power from on high, no matter how hard this season you're in now is, and that you would then learn to wait, even with joy, because don't you see? See the hands? The Father keeps his promises. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us all things? And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple. Blessing God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.